The major political parties fight for control. There's bloodshed in the Middle East. I answer the question, why are Americans' politicians so, so old? And we do a bit of a deep dive into the end of court reporting as we know it. Welcome to the new show on Utter Radio. This is called The Journalist's Notebook, and I'm Max Earnshaw. It's a pleasure to be broadcasting to you here from Media City UK in the University of Salford. I'm going to tell you a little bit about myself and then we're going to dive into some fantastic content that I've got here for you on the Journalist's Notebook. So I'm Max. I'm from the northeast of England in a place called Newcastle. Well, near Newcastle, it's called Whitley Bay. And I'm a journalism student doing a master's degree here at the University of Salford. And I'll be bringing you the Journalist's Notebook Every Friday from 9.30 until 10.30 in the morning. Uh, just to kind of acknowledge early doors that I'm aware that the uh, the name that I've chosen isn't a perfect one. I um, Sometimes people question how I pronounce the word book, uh, as in notebook. That's because I'm from the northeast. People around here would say uh, book. People probably in the whole country would say book. I suppose maybe Salfordians might say uh but book. That's <laughs> uh, a way to uh, way way to get the the audience on side, Max. Um, so yes, and what I'm going to be bringing you here from the University of Salford's Media City campus is just a bit of a flavour of what's going on in the world of journalism, giving you a little bit of a flavour on how the stories are produced, where we get them, how they're created, and how they're told. Now, of course. There's a lot of different perspectives when you're a journalist and nobody can be expected to have a grasp of all areas and fields of journalism. So what I'm going to try and do is break each section off into uh, a loosely ascribed uh, subheading. We, uh, we're going to start with uh, a domestic bit of analysis each week, then we're going to go into some world analysis and world news I'm going to try and give you a deep dive each week into something that's really caught my eye, either in the news that week or something uh, that I feel is pertinent that maybe isn't getting enough coverage. And then we're going to finish each week with some sort of feature or historical story, just to round off the week on a, a slightly more interesting... Uh, not interesting, no, that implies that the start of it isn't interesting, but on a slightly more thought-provoking note to end the week. Uh, something for you to ruminate on that maybe isn't as cut and dry as the rest of what's going on. Uh, but as I alluded to at the start, we're going to dive in with a little bit of domestic analysis. I want to address the fact that all the major political parties have been hosting their respective party conferences uh, this recent kind of month or so since the uh, the end of September. I'm going to dive in with the party that are in government. I'm going to talk a little bit about Labour and then I'm going to round up uh, some of the other thoughts on the Liberal Democrats, the Green Party and the Scottish National Party and kind of try and contextualise them in light of what I've been discussing. Ahead of future weeks on this show we're going to have fantastic guests we're going to have fantastic thought-provoking maybe phone-ins or audience interaction we're going to make sure that the social media is uh, is popping uh, <laughs> as, as they say um but this week we're just gonna 
treat this maybe as a pilot episode just to get an idea of how things work how things function i'm new to this studio i'm happy to admit that i've uh, kind of been inducted about an hour ago so if things don't run entirely smoothly then uh, just forgive that and as well uh, i'm gonna end up probably losing my voice if i'm gonna talk for around about an hour uh, but i do have some music uh, to intersperse the different sections so there's nothing to worry about there. I'm going to dive in, though, and talk a little bit about the Conservative Party Conference, which was, of course, held on our doorstep here in Salford. It was held in central Manchester. They were staying in uh, in a hotel that I, uh, I walked past quite frequently when I was doing my undergraduate degree in Manchester. And I, I'm just going to try and set the ball rolling and talk a little bit about what the Conservatives were seeking out of their party conference and whether it would be fair to say that they had been successful. I think that that's kind of the the uh, an, uh, the analysis that I want to bring you today in a kind of an uh, analytical journalistic capacity because as we all know journalists take many guises, some simply report facts, some attempt to stay impartial some try and bring a little bit more analysis and i want to reflect all of that so we're going to dive in and give a little bit of analysis and ideas i'm not going to be partisan or anything like that i'm not going to be rude or supportive about any of the parties i'm just going to try and give you an idea of where we stand with them and how they can be compared uh to their own goals if you like and and try and gauge them against against their own measurements i think that's a, a nice fair way of doing things so what did the conservatives want to get out of the conservative party conference in manchester i kind of laugh slightly because they didn't they, ne they never choose a city in which they're popular i suppose they're, they're not known for being popular in cities at the moment uh, cities have become much more of a labor party uh, stronghold in in recent uh, kind of years and, and even decades going back to uh, the turn of the century and and my entire lifetime there's something to make you feel old my entire lifetime since the turn of the century um but they've been in manchester i think three years now three years in a row and that's kind of leads me into my first point which is rishi sunak wants to be seen as a new figure in conservative party conference politics and also politics more generally and yet he's doing the same as what his predecessors did in this sense. Um, he knows that in order to win, there needs to be a kind of depiction of himself in contrast to previous governments and previous uh, prime ministers, which is obviously ludicrous in some ways when you consider that he was uh, the Chancellor of the Exchequer where Boris Johnson was the prime minister and obviously had a very prominent role during the, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic and even... Uh, it's worth noting that he received uh, uh, one of the fixed penalty notices during uh, the COVID pandemic. Uh, so his attempts to distance himself from that might be a little bit difficult, but he's attempting to do it regardless. And to be fair, he did make it clear that in the kind of intervening period between the end of Boris Johnson's government and the start of his, uh, what, what we would describe as the the period of Liz Truss, if you like, the uh, the 40 days in which she competed with a, a head of cabbage, was it, or a head of lettuce, uh, to see uh, who would last the longest, and, and she lost. 
Uh, he, he didn't take a, a seat. I, I don't think he was offered, but he didn't take a position in the cabinet during that period. So he, he did cut himself off from that government. And of course, his resignation was one of the key things that brought down Boris Johnson. So to be fair to him, he, he has got a little, you know, the, the, the beginnings of a track record, <coughs> excuse me, of making himself someone who is, you know, a bit separate and a bit different, maybe. Um, and and this is something that he's really trying to drill down on. So the big announcement that he had that he wanted to give in his speech was HS2 being ditched from Birmingham to Manchester. Just to give a bit of context on this, the previous plan was to bring in high-speed rail uh, going from London up to Leeds, it was originally. The Leeds leg was scrapped very, very uh, relatively early in in the uh, in the process, um, and they will be going from London to Birmingham. Uh, there were a few question marks about whether it might be starting at Old Oak Common, which is around six miles outside of central London. But there is a pledge that it will be going all the way uh, into central London, but it will only be going to Birmingham. It won't be coming up uh, near to us in Manchester, and that is something that's quite significant and it's something that I think we keep returning to on the point of Rishi Sunak which is that I don't know how good of a, a nose he has for politics. He's relatively new as an MP, he's part of the 2015 uh, intake. Before that he uh, worked in the finance industry as has as repeatedly been uh, made a big deal out of that um, and he wanted that announcement for himself uh, I think it's clear because he spent three days in Manchester basically dodging that question. And I think that's really significant because if you're in Manchester, it's clear that you're going to get questions about HS2. I mean, wherever he went, he was going to get questions about HS2, but it feels particularly significant that he was in Manchester trying to give the Conservative Party conference and everybody just asked him about HS2. And he basically says that he's not interested in discussing uh, HS2 when no, no decision has been taken and he won't be discussing it until a decision has been made. He then makes the announcement uh, officially on the Wednesday and that's accompanied by a video which was clearly filmed you know before he came to Manchester so he did know that the decision was going to be taken but he held on to it and that's the interesting thing why did he hold on to that announcement before he uh kind of made it on, on the Wednesday. Is it because he was quite pleased to be able to make that announcement? Does he think that'll be going down well? The You know, having a, a finger on the pulse in the Manchester, kind of greater Manchester area, as I do here, that went down like an absolute lead balloon. It went down, you know, worse than a lead balloon, like a, uh, <laughs> a lead, I was going to say Led Zeppelin, but that's a band, a lead blimp, shall I say. It went down like a big lead thing uh, that, that was in the air. And it was really significant, I think, because why would the Prime Minister be happy to say something that was going to be unpopular? Well, it's about who it's unpopular with. He's clearly decided that much, pretty much all of Greater Manchester isn't his voter base. So he's happy to announce and get rid of that. And he didn't do a lot of due diligence into kind of winning us back over because his is kind of uh i'm very sorry you're not getting hs2 you're going to get something instead that something was a line on the uh, metro link the trams 
uh, to Manchester Airport, which has existed since 2014 and has been open and running uh, for that entire period since. So it's not a case of new stuff um, being announced. I mean, he did say, oh, we're going to have some new roads, we're going to have some different train lines, but that all felt very reticent and it, it didn't get a big media splash and I, I don't think Sunak will mind that because what he wants instead is to bank the billions that they were going to spend on HS2 and not put that into an area which he won't win electorally anyway. He wants to be able to make tax t- tax cuts because he knows that the Conservative Party um, voted for Liz Truss, uh, who kind of promised a mini-budget, which would be massive tax cuts. Uh, he kind of was quite real with that and said that tax cuts weren't going to be available because of the need to pay off COVID debt and then various other reasons, including, you know, war in Europe and, and cost of living generally. I mean, that was instigated by Liz Truss's budget, but he still needed to try and mitigate against it. And that meant that he wasn't going to be dropping taxes, uh, which won't go down well with his core of conservative voters. So he, ne- he needs to win them over and then he needs to win over the rest of the country. And it, it, it just felt like HS2 being dropped was a calculated risk to try and get some money bank to try and in the future make a decision to try and promote or otherwise cast himself as someone that was going to be a tax cutter and a, and a reformist to the tax system in a way that he thinks that the British public want. Um, so another kind of thing that I noticed from the Conservative Party conference was that Rishi Sunak's face is all over the Tory brand right now. I mean, if you look up the Conservative Party or the Conservative Party website, it says join Rishi. It's all about creating a brand of him. Like, you know, Boris, you know, taking politicians by name isn't a a common thing and it hasn't been historically a common thing. I mean, a few people might have called Tony Blair Tony uh, or Mrs. Thatcher Maggie, but uh, it, it's not a common thing to be taking politicians by their name. I mean, did anyone ever call David Cameron David or, or Dave? Uh, the only one that comes to mind was... Uh, was Dennis Skinner calling him Dodgy Dave, and I'm sure that's not a name that he wanted to embrace. So it's significant that he's trying to create a brand because he doesn't want to be seen as the Conservatives. He's going to hide Conservatives in tiny letters in the corner uh, because he wants to be Rishi Sunak and he wants to be something different. And I think that if he comes back as a Conservative, that's not going to do him any favours because what the biggest issue that the Tories have right now is is that the British people will vote for change. And I think that that is the nub of the issue. That it, It's been 14 years of Tory government and I think the British people are going to vote for a change to that. Now, Rishi Sunak wants that change to be that he is a different sort of Conservative. But Keir Starmer the leader of the Labour Party, will definitely make a, a a fight for his party to be the difference. And that's quite interesting. So I'm going to dive into the Labour Party after I've played you a song. This is Amy Winehouse and you're listening to Utter Radio. Oh, I can't ever be to you Cause I 
darkness that we know and this regret I got accustomed to. Once it was the ride when we were at our high, waiting for you in the hotel at night. I knew I had him at my match, but every moment we get snatched, I don't know why I got so attached. It's my responsibility. And you don't own nothing to me But to walk away I have no capacity He walks away The sun goes down He takes the day But I'm grown And in your way In this blue shade My tears dry on their own I don't understand Why do I stress the man When there's so many real things at hand We could have never had it all. We had to hit a wall. So this is inevitable withdrawal. Even if I stop one of you, and perspective pushes true, I'll be some next man's other woman. So I can't play myself again. Should just be my own best friend. I'm stuck up there, up in the head with stupid man. He walks away. The sun goes down. Say no regrets and no emotion, no death. Cause as we kiss goodbye, the sun sets. So we are history, the shadow covers me, the sky above the place, and only love will see. He walks away, the sun goes down. Amy Winehouse on Utter Radio. That's sounding pretty good on a Friday morning. I hope, you're, uh, hope your week's been good. And I'm hoping that you're looking forward to the weekend. You're listening to The Journalist's Notebook here on uh, Utter Radio. So <laughs> I'm just making sure that I get the name of the station right. So uh, a little bit about me and my background is uh, when I was doing my undergraduate degree in Manchester, I've had previous radio shows on student radio. And their student radio is called Fuse FM. And at some point when I'm working here, I will say, so it's Amy Winehouse on Fuse FM. I will do it. It trips off the tongue and I can only apologise for that. There'll be people uh, working for Utter Radio who will hear me say that and come round and and sack me. 
and and I can't blame them for that because that that's my own fault. Um, anyway, I'm going to dive back in and talk a little bit more about what we were talking about before. Uh, just whilst that song was playing, I was doing a little bit of research. It's always good to back up your claims. And I realised that it did sound a little bit partisan that I was kind of saying unsubstantiatedly, if that's a word, that the British people would want to change. I've just looked for various polls and there's a fair few polls saying this. The most illuminating, I think, is the Ipsos uh, political monitor, which was taken earlier this year, 2023, saying that 70% of people think the Conservatives have done a poor job in government. 66% think it's time for a change. Interestingly, 11% think the Conservatives have done a good job, but it's still time for a change. Now that 11% is going to be something that Rishi Sunak's strategy about making himself a new type of Conservative is seeking to take advantage of. It's not a huge chunk of the electorate, but 11% can be really significant. And if you'd rather have 11% than lose it, and it, that, that is perhaps, you know, if, if you look at the other numbers, and I, I do suggest that you go out and have a little look at some of the polls, 10% think the Tories have gonna, done a good job and there's no need to change. They're safe for him. 15% say the Tories have done a poor job, but next election is not the time for change. So you can assume that there may be Conservatives that are unhappy with the Liz Truss or Boris Johnson periods, but might be a little bit more sympathetic to the uh, current Conservative government. 55% think the Tories have done a poor job and it is time to change. They're people that he's perhaps not going to win over or he'll not be able to win over a big block of them. 11% though is what's left over. They're the ones that think the Tories have done a, a good job but it's still time for change. They're the, the uh, people that he's going to try and seek to win over because it's not a strong reason if you think that the government, the incumbent government, is doing a good job, then simply thinking, oh, it's time for a change, is not a solid reason that won't be able to be chipped away at. And I think that that is what Rishi Sunak uh, will be thinking going into the election, which is likely, I think, to be in about a year from now. I think that there's been rumblings about perhaps a May election, but it's perhaps more likely that it'll be in October. That's perhaps a, a conversation for another week and that can be something that we have a little bit of an investigate into. Uh, but probably an election within the next 12 months and that's what he's going to have an eye on. And the other group that will be having an eye on that, nice little segue, uh, is the Labour Party under Keir Starmer. Their conference was in Liverpool. So again, the North West uh, sees both political parties or both major political parties coming into town um, and they seemed to continue this approach of uh, persevering with what's known as the Ming Vase strategy. If you're not familiar with the Ming Vase strategy, it's not um, necessarily difficult to get your head around, but it is a bit of a, an unusual image, if you like. If you imagine a Ming Vase, a kind of delicate, expensive vase, if you don't want to break that, if that represents the lead that the Labour Party has over the Conservative Party, you're not going to be gambling with it. You're not going to be kind of tr trying to, trying to uh, 
Um, I, I, I don't know where this analogy is going, actually. I'm not sure if people have put that much thought into it. Basically, it's that you don't want to drop the Ming vase um, and you don't want to do anything too risky with the Ming vase. You just want to persevere it and put it on a shelf and maybe polish it, but otherwise leave it well alone. And uh, it was in The Guardian um, that it said that someone accused one of the Labour Party aides or advisers after the uh, conference in Liverpool of having put on a pretty boring affair. And the the advisor replies, good, that well, we, we've done our job then. And that seems to be almost the USP for Labour, is we've had a very tumultuous time uh, over the last few years, whether... You know, whose fault you think that is, that's not the the kind of remit of the journalist to tell you. But it's undoubtable, or, or doubtless, that in recent years, politics hasn't been boring. And the Labour Party has kind of taken this gamble to say, well, people are used to politics being boring, that's fine, they're happy with that. And they should return to that. Um, and so... When the policy announcements are kind of skirted over a little bit and, you know, Keir Starmer tries to just put out a general vibe rather than drilling down into specific policy, that's what he's trying to do. And it it seems to be that they want to be broadly seen as a, a party which are electorally competent. Um, they don't want to tread on toes. They want to embrace, for example, they had a lot of uh, big business at the at the party conference, uh, more than had even been the case under Tony Blair's leadership. They they are very happy to be seen as establishment friendly, and I think that that's really significant. Um, so, the the idea now for the Labour Party isn't necessarily to put down real concrete policy. They want to just put out a feeling or a vibe or a sentiment about them that they look competent, that they look ready to take over and they look ready to make government not a big fuss again. And that's what they're trying to cast and that's what they're trying to portray. And whilst that is working at the moment, undoubtedly in the polls, we as journalists have a responsibility to question that and analyse that as to whether it's being successful. And it's certainly a risk. By not taking a risk, he is ironically taking a risk. Because the last time that the Labour Party won an election was under Tony Blair. The last time they won an election without a leader called Tony Blair was, you know, when before my parents were born. It was like in the in the... Um, kind of maybe it was just just after they were born, but in the uh, in the nineteen seventies, probably seventy four. I'm gonna hazard a guess at, uh, and apologies to anyone that knows better. So it's really significant, I think, that whilst Keir Starmer doesn't have real poor approval ratings as leader. A lot of people just don't have strong opinions on him. They don't think he's doing a particularly good job. They just don't think he's doing a bad job. He's just hovering somewhere around maybe where Neil Kinnock was or perhaps uh, where John Smith was uh, before he, he sadly passed away. And I think it's, you know, something to consider 
that that lead could go really, really quickly. Or that that perception could go really, really quickly. There needs to be something for people to latch on to. You can't be the party that has the boring leader and that's it. They need to have solid policy. They need to have a kind of sentiment or a vibe that that is more than simply not the Conservatives. And that, that'll be interesting and that'll be something to keep an eye on as we fly forward uh, into the kind of uh, run-up year to the election, uh, probably in, in uh, autumn of 2024, perhaps in May. Uh, the final things that I want to discuss is the Liberal Party Conference, the Green Party Conference and the Scottish National Party Conference. The Scottish National Party Conference was the most recent of the three. Um, and it these are all cases of the people involved in them have, have been happy with how they've gone. And I think the Liberal Democrats are making strides back towards uh, challenging the Conservatives in traditional uh, Tory party heartlands but also threatening Labour in some of the cities so that that's a kind of interesting uh, balance I think also the Liberals have got their eye on a few seats in Scotland the SNP are worried I think uh, the recent situation uh, with Humza Yusuf responding to the Israel-Palestine conflict or the Israel-Gaza conflict um, has perhaps humanised him a little bit more to people that had previously not known much about him. Uh, so that's something that he has uh, done well on and I think responded well on. But the SMP conference was kind of marred by people saying that it was not particularly well attended. And I think that that's significant. Again, the SMP have been in government in Holyrood for... Uh, I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but quite a significant period of time. And it will reach that point where tactical voting uh, against uh, independence people will start to bite them at times. But also the appetite for change and the appetite to do things differently. If Labour look like they might be winning uh, at Westminster, then there is often... uh, a swell of support in Scotland of people that want to be part of that and want to try and vote out uh, the Conservatives and if they think there's a real chance of Labour getting in then they're more likely to go with Labour to try and get the Tories out. So these these are all things to consider um, and the Green Party as well um, kind of dedicated their conference to uh, remembering and and, and kind of cheering and commemorating the... um, sitting of Caroline Lucas as her MP, uh, as, as their only MP who is standing down, but they have plans or they have a, a goal to put in four Green Party MPs uh, at the next election. We'll see how that one goes. Um, I've been talking for about half an hour and I've still got three sections that I want to dive in on. We're going to talk about world news next and then we're going to do a bit of a deep dive on court reporting and try and answer the question why America's politicians are so, so old. But I reckon that first half an hour on domestic has been plenty for you to listen to my voice on, and I'm going to play you a song now. This one is Disclosure, and you're listening to Utter Radio.
This is Utter Radio.
Disclosure and a Luna George. That one's called White Noise, and you're listening to Utter Radio. So, something which I want to talk about next here on Utter Radio is it, it's another angle of journalism, and it's it's a difficult one to talk about because it's a complicated issue, and it's. So basically, this is the world news section. And as you will know, if you've been paying attention to the news, if you've been watching the news, there is a lot to talk about with the Israel-Palestine debate. As journalists, it's often not our jobs to hold or espouse views. It's important to, to report the information that we have in an impartial way. And that's what I'm, I'm going to exercise that right today, because the information today that we have is really, really complicated and important um to talk about but to take a side is really really difficult and i think it's important to have a, a level of nuance uh, to these things that that i think at the moment the media is maybe missing out so um, what i'm going to do first is talk about the origins of the conflict that we're having at the moment that we're seeing at the moment and then I'm going to discuss a little bit about the risks and the dangers of reporting uh, on issues such as this. So the Israel-Gaza or Israel-Palestine conflict has deep historical roots primarily centred about um, competing national identities and territorial claims. Um, the, in, in 1948... The state of Israel was established in um, what had previously been the British manda uh, mandate in Palestine, British Mandatory Palestine, uh, which had previously uh, been uh, operated by the British Empire. So the British had colonised the area and uh, ran it up until the end of the Second World War. After the Holocaust in Europe, the Jewish people... Um, felt the need or lots of jewish people felt the need to have a, a safe homeland and wanted it to be in that area for religious reasons these people that wanted that are known as zionists and uh, the creation of the state of israel in 1948 uh, intensified uh, hostilities because the, uh, the people that already lived there uh, weren't or didn't want to uh, give up the, the 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 space they they were um kind of appealed to the to the united nations uh, on the issue uh because they they didn't want to be uh put out of their land uh there's subsequently been a lot of warfare and a lot of bloodshed what's described as the nakba uh which was uh, a period in which uh i think 70 i've got the number here excuse me for one moment Eighty-five percent of the Arab population of the territory which became Israel uh, were never allowed to return to the area. That's seven hundred thousand Palestinians. So, that's the piece of nuance that I think is important to, that we're aware of um, when reporting on this story. Which is where did the sentiment behind Hamas come from? Hamas are a terrorist organization. They believe in the genocide of Jewish people. 
and their behaviour is reprehensible. It can also fairly be stated that we understand where it came from in some senses. And that's that's the nuance that I think that people need to understand. And when you say we can understand where it comes from, that obviously doesn't condone it. But it's important to say that it can be understood where the anti-Israel sentiment came from. But obviously there's no way that anyone can justify what they uh, the, the the atrocities that they're um, committing. On the other side of it, and it would be remiss not to mention that Israel uh, have ordered the uh, evacuation of the area known as Gaza, which is uh, part of um, it, it. It's administered by the United Nations, uh, but it's an area in which a lot of uh, people identifying as Palestinian live. And they've ordered the evacuation of that area so that they say they can uh, target uh, Hamas areas. Um, they've also cut off electricity and water and power supplies to that area. And the uh, crossing in which many people were using to exit the Gaza area, uh, is it's not safe to do so. So... That's where a lot of the accusations that Israel is uh, violating international law and the Geneva Convention, that's where they come from. And you'll see a lot of arguments put to um, politicians and uh, people representing the military and the army saying, is Israel's right to self-defence? At the moment, that they're exercising that are they going too far and are they breaking international law and that's a question for the politicians to answer journalists simply need to understand that and ask that question so that's the nub of the issue the second part that i want to talk about is the dangers of reporting on a story such as this and very sadly uh, the bbc is reporting and the independent is reporting that various journalists have sadly died uh, reporting on this issue um the wall street journal uh gave a number of uh, 11 people who've died uh, reporting on this story um reporters sans frontier has named them as well and i do implore people to go out and seek out those names and those stories of the dangers of reporting on an active war zone um, and just just to remember the dangers that reporters put themselves in when bringing the stories. I, I couldn't not mention that as someone that is discussing uh, journalism here on Otter Radio. So that's the second part of uh, my show today uh, complete and wrapped up. That's uh, what I wanted to say on the Israel-Palestine slash Israel-Gaza issue. I'm now going to play another song and then we're going to do a couple of our deep dives and then I'll leave you. So thank you for listening and join me after this song, which is Clean Bandit. We're a thousand miles from comfort We have traveled land and sea 
Bandits and the woman off the Jet 2 advert on Utter Radio. I nearly did it again. Nearly said the wrong name of the station again. Um, yes, that uh, was the third song. So we're into the third section of today's show. And we've got around 15 minutes that I'm still with you coming up to half past 10 on Friday morning. I'm going to talk a little bit now about uh, a deep dive that uh, I've been researching that I want to tell you a little bit about. Uh, I was in court last week. I've not done anything, don't worry. I was doing a little bit of court reporting. 
uh, or at least observing procedures so I get a better idea of how to do it in the future. Um, we, we were getting a feeling for the function of the UK law and, and justice system and I've got a broader interest in media law and at the end the judge addressed us as students which we were very uh, pleased and excited uh, to have that opportunity um, and he was very pleased to have us there because he talks about the fact that he doesn't see any reporters anymore in court um, there's a difficulty in court reporting 42% of editors felt that it became harder to obtain access into court during 2021 um, I would speculate, based on the words of the judge and kind of some broader research that I've done, the pandemic saw fewer people uh, attend the courtroom itself during COVID because they could join on Zoom or whatever it was and watch a live stream instead. But those streams have ended and the habit of going to court hasn't returned. And even when the reporters do attend, they still find it difficult to fully report the reasoning for a sentence. The judge spoke a little bit about how um, a kind of clickbaity headline had said that, uh, how long somebody had got for a particular uh, crime that they of which they were found guilty, and and he had administered the sentence, and a lot of people said, well, that's nowhere near enough for for the particular crime that was committed, but that was actually right at the very top of the sentencing guidelines of which they have to follow every time, and that that information wasn't disseminated by the journalist, and it's important. Uh, all the time to, to give context when you're reporting on stories, even if they're news stories. You, you don't just have to report the facts that you've seen. You can do the research, you can find out more information, and you can give your reader a bit more insight. And th this is something that that is maybe missing if you don't go to court and you don't listen word for word for what the judge is saying. You simply you know, find out online what the verdict was or you, you kind of take the words that another journalist has wrote and, and rewrite them or whatever it is. It's not the fault of reporters in my mind as to why they're not going. The University of Huddersfield found that cuts within the justice system have had uh, an impact on the work of court reporters because courts traditionally have press rooms within the precincts of the court where journalists can work on stories, but that that's uh, no longer the case as much anymore. And significantly, uh, the number of courts that there are is dropping because of cuts so people are having to travel further to get to court as well um david banks wrote of this issue in the guardian 12 years ago which proves that this is an older issue than the pandemic it was happening anyway uh, david banks is a, a media law expert he's someone that uh, i've uh, previously uh, had dealings with he's a he's a, a very nice guy and have a look on uh, Twitter if you're interested in some <laughs> ruminations on media law. Uh, he speculated that the closing of various courts and magistrates uh, amid cuts means that it's harder to justify the travel from the office. Uh, and also trials are taking so long to come to court and subsequently to be sent sentenced after that. And when we have the information drilled into us that news must be new, it's hard to not understand why you know, the, these stories are going unreported. Crazy stuff, newsworthy stuff happens in a courtroom, but people aren't there to get the stories. And, and that's, that's something that is a real shame. Um, so what's the solution as, as we come to uh, the, the final part of this section? The UK Press Gazette suggested 
ring fencing uh, ring fencing some funding for court reporting in 2021 um you've got to remember that the judge told me that the function of court depends on there being bodies in the press room uh, because where justice is disseminated there should be people there to report on it is this likely is it hell you know there's there's big cuts to the uk justice system and will there be funding ring fenced uh, i i severely doubt it so I, I i would kind of end this uh this deep dive and i i do intend to to write this up at some stage so keep an eye out for uh for where this may be reported online i'll, I'll, I'll let you know where it might go up uh, in, in a future show but do look out for court reporting because it is important that we keep doing it and uh I, I would wholeheartedly endorse it and that that's something that just twigged my mind uh this week i do uh, suggest that you keep an eye out um and thank you very much for listening to that section uh, i've got one more section to come just as i start to lose my voice i've been talking for a bit more than an hour now <coughs> excuse me you'll probably hear the edited version i will leave in that uh, cough though just so you know how much i'm suffering for my art um <laughs> i'm going to play one more song and then we're going to try and answer the question why america's politicians are just so old you're listening to utter radio and this one is undercover martin by two-door cinema club
Sounding so good, actually, on uh, on Utter Radio, that. Undercover Martin by Two Door Cinema Club. And we're nearly at the end of our show. I'm glad you've listened. Thank you very much if you have. Uh, this is perhaps somewhat of a pilot, my first show, my first go in this studio here in the University of Salford's Media City campus. I feel like I've grown into the episode and I have hope you uh, have enjoyed it. Um, I will be broadcasting this time every week um, from 9.30 till 10.30 on Friday mornings. This is my slot, my regular slot now. Uh, So do tune in and see what else we've got to talk about uh, that is in the journalist's notebook. Um, As the weeks go by, I'm going to promote a bit of uh, audience interaction as well. Um, and we're going to try and get some marketing stuff off the ground but at the moment it is a little bit bare bones but thank you uh, for sticking with it uh, if indeed you have my final section my final thing to talk about now as i've got (laughs) just look and i've got two and a half minutes with which to do it better timekeeping that's what i'm going to do next week Um, i do want to talk a little bit about why america's politicians are so old at the end of september of this year senator diane feinstein died aged 90 She'd been a sitting U.S. senator for the nation's most populated state of California. She represented 40 million people alongside junior senator Padilla. There's different perspectives to explain why the U.S. is in a gentocracy. That's a a society in which old people have a lot of power. Congress has one of its oldest memberships in history because of the ease with which career politicians are able to ingratiate and remain in power argues the Wall Street Journal. Being in office builds status, which allows for the financial and relationship-driven continuation of their power. It's an interesting theory. Is it true? doesn't fully explain how Biden and Trump, the two oldest men to have ever been president, are likely to be the uh, presidential candidates again in 2024. Because whilst Biden benefited from the latter in terms of getting relationships, Trump would be a bit of an outlier. He was... He's old, sure, but... He didn't benefit from establishing uh, um, Washington connections, shall we say. He also didn't necessarily benefit uh, from... <laughs> I'm just I'm laughing at the idea that uh, Donald Trump uh, had, had had good relationships with people in Washington. It certainly wasn't the case. Um, the US doesn't necessarily prioritise age when making this pick. Um, so this is something that I'm going to return to next week and talk a little bit more about. Um, but do bear it in mind. This is your little uh, something to bear in mind as you go ahead uh, into the next week. I'll see you next Friday. We're going to start off with why America's politicians are so old. Um, and we'll find out some new news going ahead as well. But as I coast up to the hour mark and I'm frantically told that I need to wrap up, I'm going to say... Thank you very much indeed for listening. This has been Utter Radio. I'm Max Earnshaw and please do join me next week between 9.30 and 10.30 on a Friday morning where I'll be presenting The Journalist's Notebook. That's the show in which I go through journalism and the perspectives and news, a bit of journalistic analysis, some ideas that I've maybe had, some things which I think are pertinent to discuss, and some more general stories, both domestic, international, and some deep dives as well. Thank you very, very, very much for listening, and good morning.